there are successful pastors and evangelists who are not so successful fathers. There are successful businessmen and professionals who are not so successful fathers. There are very successful political leaders who are not so successful fathers. Now, King David was one of those. He was a great king. He was a warrior. He was a leader. He was a king. He was a spiritual giant in many ways for his generation. And yet, he failed as a father. King David was so busy doing his job that he failed at his task. One of his sons raped his half-sister. Another son killed the rapist's half-brother. And to top it all, his son Epsilon conducted a coup d'etat and toppled his father off his throne. So much so that Epsilon really has taken the reins of power in Israel. And to make things worse, King David had to escape from his palace in order to just save his skin, just to save his life. He had to run away. Powerful, successful King David was on the run. A king is in deep trouble. And as this king who is in deep trouble views his desperate situation, as this great king begins to see the tragic condition in which he finds himself, as David finds his heart and his emotions and his kingdom are torn apart, as David contemplates this pathetic plight in which he finds himself, he sits down and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes Psalm 28. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 28. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask you to open our spiritual eyes that we must see and learn from this incredible man of God, that we will learn from his failures, that we learn from his experience, that, oh God, we may be pleasing to you in Jesus' name. Amen. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story, and the story is about a corrupt judge. The Bible calls him an unjust judge. And a corrupt judge who obviously accepts bribes. He obviously does not do the right thing by people. And then Jesus said there was a widow who desperately needed this corrupt judge to do the right thing. She knew he doesn't do the right thing often, and therefore she wanted him to do the right thing at least this once. The judge was not interested simply because this woman did not have money to bribe him in order to get him to do what she wants him to do, despite of the fact that what she wanted is the right thing. And so, the only thing she knew was banging on his door day and night. Vindicate me. Vindicate me. Vindicate me. Do the right thing, judge. Do the right thing, judge. And finally Jesus said, this man said to himself, look, I know deep down I'm corrupt. I know that this woman can't afford to bribe me. I know that I don't often do the right thing. But in this case, I'm going to do the right thing just to get rid of her. And stop her from nagging me. 
What was Jesus saying? Listen carefully, please. Here's what Jesus is saying. He is saying that God is the very opposite of that judge. Everything that this judge is, God is not. And everything that God is, that judge was not. Because God is just. God is fair. God always, always, always does the right thing. Now here's the point. If the corrupt judge, if the unjust judge did the right thing because of the woman's importunity, how much more, said Jesus, that the righteous, holy, just judge of the universe, how much more will he do for his children who cry to him day and night? What Jesus is saying is this. I want you to listen carefully. Please hear me right on this one. Don't miss it. He is saying that bold, persistent prayer that is according to the will of God, will get God's answer. I want to repeat that. Bold, persistent prayer that is prayed in accordance to the will of God will get God's answer. You know, in this psalm, as you look at it, you'll find that really it is a prayer, but it's in a song. It's in a song format. In fact, there are three stanzas in that song prayer. Three stanzas. First stanza, verses 1 and 2, You see, David places his confidence. He makes a confident request. Two words you need to remember. Confident request. The second stanza, verses 3 and 5, is that he makes a calm reasoning with God. The third stanza is that he receives a cause for rejoicing. Six words, all you need to remember. If you remember those six words, you'll remember all the message. Okay? Here are the six words. Confident request. Can you say confident request? The second, calm reasoning. And the last one, cause for rejoicing. Well, I flunked math. I think there's seven words. Nonetheless, you remember those three things. You will remember this message. It is my prayer and has been my prayer that God will use this message to literally transform your walk with Him. David's confident request stems not of who David is or the desperation that he's in or even the justice of his cause. No. But the confidence of David's request stems from his confidence of who God is. To you I call, O Lord, my rock. Now I want to tell you a few things about a rock in case you don't know. A rock in the Bible is a symbol of the changeless God. The rock is a symbol of the immutability of God. The rock is a symbol of the permanence of God. The rock is a symbol of the invincibility of God. The rock is a symbol of the strength of God. I want you to listen to what I'm going to tell you. No one has the right to call themselves the rock. Now, a two-bit wrestler (laughs) may call himself the rock, but he's not a rock at all. In fact, uh, you get another one of those acting wrestlers and come in and beat him up, and he's no longer the rock. That's just, you know, he got his own imagination running wild about himself. Only God can be called the rock. Amen? 
Only God can be called the rock. And I don't want you to miss the contrast here in this psalm. This is an incredible psalm. There's a lot of contrasts. David's world is falling apart. But God is the rock. David's world is crumbling from under him. But God is the rock. David's world sliding from under him, but God is his rock. David's throne seemed to be invincible just a few days ago, have been snatched away from him, but God is the rock. David's security is melting before his very eyes, but God is the rock. David's subjects have turned on him and turned against him, but God is the rock. David's world is collapsing before his eyes, but God is the rock. David's world seemed to be nothing like it once was. But God is His rock. Have you ever been there? I sure have. When everything seems to be working great, and then all of a sudden, things begin to fall apart. Totally out of your control. The company that you counted on. The business deal that you worked hard for. The marriage that looked as solid as a rock. The health that you are so proud of. You wake up one morning and it's in trouble. In those situations, what do you do? Well, David turned to the only one who's unchangeable. David turned to the one whose love for him does not ebb and flow. David turned to the only one whose stability is unquestionable. Let me ask you a question. When your world collapses before your eyes, do you turn to God the rock or do you blame God? When you are betrayed by your dearest and nearest, do you turn to the rock of ages or do you get angry with God? When you find yourself in trouble because of your own wrong choices... Do you cry to the rock of ages or do you falsely accuse him of not protecting you from the consequences of your own choices? I remember one time, several years ago, a man sat in my office and he literally got himself exactly where he was. Nobody helped him and he was in a mess and he was blaming God. I said, how in the world can you blame God for that? He said, he should have protected me. You know, occasionally, let me, I hope you don't misunderstand this, but I sometimes feel sorry for God. <laughs> I mean, he gets blamed for everything. We go make a mess of our lives. I say, well, you know, God, you know, he's, where's God? People have nothing to do with God. And all of a sudden, when they're in trouble, where is God? I want you to hear me right here. The problem with most people, they feel that God owes them something. They do. They run around, feel that God owes them. Listen, God owes you nothing. You owe him everything. The source of David's confidence request is the mercy of God. There are people who think that God owes them something. People running around saying the government owes me something. Others running around saying the church owes me something. Someone said my parents owe me something. Nobody owes you anything, buddy. Listen to me. I want you to listen. If you go around, running around in your life, thinking that the world owes you something, somebody owes you something, you will never accomplish great things in your life. This victimization mentality that's sweeping across the land needs to be stopped by God's people. And say enough is enough. David said, hear my cry, O Lord, 
For what? What is he crying for? For what is due to him? No. For what he thinks God owes him? No. For what he thinks his demands are? No. For what his desire is? No. He said, hear my cry for mercy. Can you say mercy? Hear my cry for mercy. That's all that David was asking for. Listen to me. You know, as a matter of fact, it's far stronger than this. David has figured out that if God does not hear him and hear his cry for mercy and answer his prayer, he's as good as dead. That's what he said. And you know what? I fully identify with David. I know many of you do too. Without God's mercy, I'm as good as dead. There are times in my life after I've blown it. And you say, you mean you have blown it? You better believe it, big time. Now many times in my life after I've blown it, I've gone to God on all fours. And I say, God, I don't have the right to ask for anything except the promise of your mercy. Obviously, as you look at this psalm, you realize that God has been silent for a while. You know how I know that? We look at in the text. David is appealing to God to break the silence and answer his prayer. David has such confidence in God's mercy that he could say to the Lord, Oh Lord, if you don't answer my prayer and my cry for mercy, I am as good as dead. And David said, I lift up my hands toward the holy place. What is that? It is a passionate way of expressing his deep longing to be back in the temple of God, worshiping God once again. He's pleading for God to give him mercy and have mercy on him and answer his prayer. You know, when Moses lifted up his hands on top of the mountain, Joshua won the battle. When Jacob wrestled with God, with hands lifted high, God heard his prayers and answered them. When Jesus in Gethsemane, the Bible said his sweat was like drops of blood, the resurrection took place three days later. Can I be upfront with you? Can I be honest with you? Not that I'm going to care whether you say yes or no. I'm going to do it anyway. I honestly, genuinely believe that most Christians do not know what it is to literally intercede in prayer. Most Christians do not understand what it means to persist in prayer. Most Christians do not understand what it means to take the horns at the altar and say, God, I'm not leaving until you answer me because you promise so. We mutter our petitions to God. I just hope that you can help me, God. Let me tell you something. If you ever say, God, I hope I'm going to stop you. If I ever hear you pray, God, I hope you can help. What do you mean you hope? Hope that God can help you? Of course God can. You're not talking to the God of the universe. You don't understand. God can do all things. And he accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.11. David not only made his request in confidence, secondly, David made his calm reasoning with God. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5 of Psalm 28. And as you look and you get to those verses, 
I want to tell you a couple of things in the light of these words of what's happening in our culture. We have been told so often that we are not supposed to judge anybody. We're not supposed to judge anything. The so-called liberals twist the words of Jesus when he said, judge not, and thus justify and rationalize sin and rationalize rebellion. They say, oh, we're not supposed to judge. And consequently, when evil and wickedness all around us abound, they say, we have no right to call that evil. Yeah, but God does. And we're going to call evil what God calls evil. I agree with them. We don't have the right, but God does. A professor was speaking to his class not so long ago, and he was talking about the atrocities of the Nazis and, and the atrocities of Hitler. And a Jewish girl in the class yelled out and said, What right do we have to judge them? That's the spirit of our age. That is the culture in which we live it right now. And beloved, I want to tell you, Satan loves it. David had already approached God on the basis of what? His self-righteousness? No. He already approached God on the basis of God's mercy. David already approached God in confessing of his own sinfulness. But he does more than that. He doesn't even begin when he's asking God and reasoning with God to do the right thing and to do the just thing. He does not begin with that. He begins by praying and asking God not to judge the wicked. He gets to that, but he begins his request of God to keep him from being dragged into the quagmire of the wicked. Why? Why do you think he's praying that? Because David understands that he has the propensity to sin. David was aware of his own propensity to behave just like the wicked do. And that is why he begins by confessing that apart from the life-giving, sustaining power of God's Word, that apart from the life-giving, sustaining power of God's Spirit, that apart from the life-giving, sustaining power of God's mercy, he would be swept away with the wicked and be where they are. There's something important here. I really don't want you to miss it. When David was praying for justice against the wicked, and you see it there in verses 4 and 5, when he's praying for justice against the wicked, he was not just praying as private citizen David. He was praying as the king of the nation, as the ruler of the nation. You must understand the difference here. David was responsible for seeing justice take place in his kingdom. And that is why he was praying for God to empower him to do the just thing. Some of you may misunderstand what I'm going to tell you. I hope not. But hear me right on, regardless. Evil must never prosper regardless of how we feel about those who commit evil. I want to repeat that. Evil must never prosper regardless of how we feel about those who commit evil. And we must pray for evil plans to be frustrated. If you do not feel that evil should be frustrated, that evil should be judged, chances are you don't care for the victims of evil. Truly. 
Today we are being brainwashed that, that we can care more about the civil rights of a child abuser than the victim. Today we are brainwashed that we should care more for the terrorists than those who suffered at their hands. Today we're being brainwashed that we care more about the rapists than the rape victims. And ladies and gentlemen, that is wrong. And we must pray for justice, as David did. His confident request, his calm reasoning, his cause for rejoicing. Whenever we get into trouble... Actually, whether a person is a Christian or not, whenever anyone gets into trouble, they cry to God. And they ask other people, please pray for me, please pray. And they'll pray. I never prayed before, but they'll pray. And that's fine. But here's what happens most often. The Lord, in His own time and in His own way, answers the petition. And when the prayers are answered, the person is excited. I mean, he or she is elated. God, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. I'm so excited. A week later, all of a sudden, kind of the thought hits you. Oh, you know, last week God answered. Oh, God, you know, God, oh, by the way, thank you for what you did. That was good. That was neat. Thank you, God. That's fine. Well, to wait a few months later. And it's completely erased from your mind. And then, then it comes all of a sudden. You think about it. Something happened. You remember. Yeah, God answered your prayers. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. God, sorry. I should have been thanking you. I should really be thanking you every day. And I didn't. I'm sorry. And then a year or two later, when the challenges of life and the problems of life keep popping up and keep popping up. And you're so busy. And then you face another dilemma in your life. <laughs> and then you think, oh, God, you know. You've answered my prayer a couple of years ago and I cried to you. You heard my prayer. Oh, God, thank you for that. But by the way, God, what have you done for me lately? Isn't that the spirit of the age? I want to tell you something. If you want to know how that lack of gratitude affects the heart of God, you see, God is like Jesus. And one day, there were ten lepers Ten in number were walking by, and Jesus healed every one of them, all ten of them. And they went away. One of the ten hunted Jesus down. And he was not a Jew, he probably was the only Samaritan, the only foreigner among those ten. He hunted Jesus down, and he came to him. He said, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for healing me. Thank you for changing my life. Thank you for transforming my life. Thank you for restoring me to the society. Thank you for restoring me. Thank you, God. If you read the words of Jesus in the original, you'll feel the pain and the heaviness of his heart when he turns to the disciples and he says, we're not ten of them. How come just that only one, the Samaritan, comes in and says, thank you. But not David. David actually began to praise God for answered prayers before he could see evidence of that answered prayers. He began to thank God for answering prayers before the prayers could be even answered in the human eyes of this man. 
I know some time ago, I've prayed to the Lord about an issue that matter for a long time. And I remember clearly, one day as I was praying, I sensed the Lord to be saying, now I want you to thank me for answering your prayers. I said, Lord, I will as soon as I see evidence of it. And the Lord said, well, start thanking me now. And I want to confess to you, for 18 months, every single day, I would thank God for answering that prayer. But listen, I want to be, up front. I want to be honest with you. I mean, you need to know this. Every day of those 18 months, the devil taunted me at my stupidity for thanking God for answering my prayer when the evidence appears to be to the contrary. But God gave me the faith to thank him before seeing the evidence with my own eyes. Look at verse 7 of Psalm 28. David said, my heart trusted, past tense. I am helped present tense. I will praise future tense. Based on his experience with God, what is happening here? David's supplication gave way to David seeing God's hand. And seeing God's hand gave way to song of praise. I want you to hear me right on this one. We do not live our Christian life in a vacuum. We don't. Some people just go on through life and think we live our Christian life in a vacuum. We really don't. Where you are today is a result of where you were yesterday. And where you'll be tomorrow is a result of where you are today. Not only David praised God before he has seen the evidence of answered prayer, but David was interceding on behalf of others. The people who pray when they want something from God and said, God, please, 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 God, and and they get what they want, and then they forget a few days or weeks or months later. They miss out on the most incredible blessing that they could possibly have. Do you know what that is? What do I mean by that? Well... That attitude of going to God only when you want something from God, and then when you got it, you forgot about God, you have lost one of the great blessings that can only come when you know how to intercede on behalf of others. Praying for others, interceding for others. Many of us miss out on that blessing that can only come When we cry to God on behalf of the work of God, when we cry to God on behalf of the kingdom of God, when we cry to God on behalf of the things that are dear and near to the heart of God, we miss out on the blessing. And so David concludes his prayer, his song, his prayer song, by praying for others. Listen, save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. I'm going to tell you an interesting anecdote that I could not help but think about as I watched a little bit of the celebration of Queen Elizabeth, anniversary of her enthroning. That's all those rock and roll stars and all those people whose names I do not know and can't pronounce. I remember reading in history some years ago, about Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee celebration. And I could not help but 
contrast the two. You're just a natural when you're a history buff. As all the delegates were coming from all over the commonwealth, coming in there to wish Queen Victoria well, the head of the delegation from Madagascar asked if he can give the queen a gift. And he sang her favorite song. And as the queen heard her favorite song being sung by the head of the Madagascar delegation, she wept. She wept. Her favorite song was Rock of Ages, Clef for Me. Let me hide myself in thee. But there's an even more poignant point to this song. It was written by a man by the name of Augustus Toplady. At the age of 16, he received Christ into his life as he heard the gospel message preached in one of the districts of Ireland. The sermon was on Jesus the Rock. Augustus was a very frail young man. He suffered from tuberculosis. Like David, he was in trouble. He did not know a day that was free of pain. His world was always dark. His pain was unbearable. His health was crumbling. He studied for the ministry, but his body was so weak that stopped him from being able to express his passion in preaching. And he died at the age of 38, but not before he wrote these magnificent words, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.